2: live from the nasdaq market site this is fast money and today for the first time since the start of the pandemic we have got a full desk of traders great to be back i'm melissa lee with us tonight tim seymour karen feinerman dan nathan and guy adami we haven't been here all together since December of 2019, so it's a very big day. <laughs> Ahead on fast airlines and the energy trade over the past month, as the price of crude has tumbled, the airlines have taken off. Is there more to this bullish move in the skies? Plus, Elon taking his ball and going home, at least for now. Musk now not joining the board of Twitter what is his uh, about-face signaling? We'll debate that. And later, uranium's been a hot commodity, up nearly 50 percent this year. The man behind the physical uranium trust ETF will join us. He says this bull run is only in its second inning. But we start off with a rough opening to a critical week for the markets. With earnings season just days away, the S&P dropped more than 1.7 percent, closing below its 50-day moving average for the first time since March 17th. The Nasdaq was down over 2 percent, with the Qs giving up half their gains from their late-March rally. Take a look at Treasuries. The yield in the 10-year hitting its highest level since January 2019. The impact of rising rates in focus at the Fed. Governor um, Christopher Wallace saying the central bank is doing all it can to prevent collateral damage from rising rates, acknowledging that rate hikes are a brute force tool that can act as a hammer on the economy. A lot going on today, Guy. Not many reasons to be bullish right now.
3: No, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And Tim talked about this over the summer, that more Fed means more volatility. And we're starting to see it now for the first time in a long time. Now, look, the last three weeks prior to the last couple of trading days, the market took me by surprise in terms of the speed and, and just the ability for the market to rally seemingly in the wake of all this bad news. Now I think things are starting to feel a little bit more right. Yes, I know the 2s, the 10s, Went from being inverted, now it's steepening out a bit. I don't think that's the story. To me, the story, and Karen brought this up a couple weeks ago, comes in the form of HYG, which is now below 80, trading at about a two and a half year low, and that has been the precursor of a lot of very meaningful stock sell-offs, Mel. Yeah,
1: and this sell-off though, it comes after a 3.9 percent move lower last week in in tech, and and I still think, at least for now, semiconductors are the most important chart out there. And if you look at what semis have done, uh, the underperformance is almost shocking. So down. 15 percent over 10 sessions during that time has underperformed the market by 10 percent so if you think about those leaders and we've we've talked about Nvidia getting down to that 210 levels giving back 35 percent I mean the, the the move in the most sensitive and cyclical parts of the stock market um, are awful and, and it doesn't bode well in terms of the charts I know Carter's going to be here I do think that we've got you know a handful of other things that actually look pretty decent for the broader economy we forget that the consumer has a job and that part of what's going on with rates is not just the Fed, but I do think um, there are good parts of the inflation curve out there too.
2: They have a job. Wages are going up, not as quickly as the as a pace of inflation at this point. So they they are in better shape, but there are some reasons to be worried about the impact of the con- on the consumer of this inflationary. Uh, ascent that we're going through right now, Karen?
4: Yeah, because so much of the consumers is is psychological, right? How do Mm -hmm. they feel? They feel good if they're employed. They feel good if their wages are going going up. But when they go to the supermarket and they see food prices spiking higher, when they go fill up their gas tank and they see oil prices going that much higher, I I think that it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy when the consumer starts to pull back. But I don't think that's happened yet. I still think that there is some force from reopen, I mean, if you just look at New York City, I mean, the city is just exploding. Restaurants and theater and all of that. So I think we have a little more time, but um, the reckoning is coming. One thing I just want to point out, we knew the Fed was hawkish, right? We knew they were hawkish and we knew they would come out. Every day, again, and be hawkish, hawkish. And so we saw over the weekend, Bester on uh, Face the Nation. We saw it today. It's interesting to me the market sort of sold off again on the very the same, same news. news 50 <laughs> basis points and maybe another 50, and we're going to be very hawkish.
2: Yeah. Hammer, though, is not is not good <laughs> uh, terminology. We've talked a long time about how large-cap technology has held up relatively better. But today, that wasn't so. We did see the pockets of of the tech sector, for instance, that had really taken on the chin before. And this is, Karen, a point that you've made before, like the IGV, do actually better than the large-cap tech stocks.
5: Yeah, and and some of those names in the IGV should not be as sensitive as some of the inflationary pressures that some companies that we're going to hear from as we get Q1 earnings over the next few weeks, they're going to have to make a decision, right, to pass through some of the input costs um, or eat it, which is going to kind of hit their uh, market margins, which will be a hit to their earnings, right? And so when I think of like mega cap tech today, you know, all of us were kind of scratching our heads. We thought the rally off of the March lows got a little too far too fast. I think Apple had a great deal to do with that. It went up like 30 points in a straight line. You do that in market cap terms, it was like $400 billion or something like that. So on a day like today, we're going to talk about the Microsoft. I think this was a really important thing. We're going to talk about it later, but I'm going to say it right now (laughs) because you asked me. The note was about decelerating growth in one of their key recurring businesses. So if you were to start to see those sorts of sentiments on some of the other big names that make up 40 percent of the Nasdaq 100 as we get through Q1 earnings season, that is an argument for a lower multiple on those five or six names, which have been really keeping the markets levitating despite
3: all of the other damage under the hood. NVIDIA seems to be one of those names that people look as a bellwether. So let's talk about it quickly. On March, I think it was the 14th, Stock that traded down to 203, reversed that day, closed higher on a day, we talked about it on Fast Money. This was the first time in a while it's giving you an opportunity to get along the name. Trade up to 290-ish within a couple weeks, right back down to 220. I bring up the point again, I think market is focused correctly on valuations. And all these things were very short-term oversold bounce. One has to wonder what happens if we break those levels. For example, 203 in NVIDIA. Apple at current levels. Apple had a rough day. Microsoft we'll talk about. So we're starting to lose some of the horsemen of this rally.
4: Some of the fangs though. I mean, Google to me is, you know, it's down, I don't know, 10 percent or so from mm-hmm. its peak. If you back out the cash, the P.E. multiple is below 20. Same for Meta. So, I mean, those are big positions for me. I think, you know, not surprising they get sold off with other tech, but I think of them as value growth and value.
1: It's it's interesting, though, that that remember last week we were talking about some of these mega cap taxes being defensive in this environment. The same environment where the market was selling off, these were catching a bid. And and you know, Dan's brought up some questions about the growth in Microsoft and, and in Office and whatnot. I, I don't know that we know until we get to probably second quarter numbers what this environment, what the feds, you know, we talked about all these aggressive and, and almost scary sounding terms. They're applying to what needs to happen with the instrument that is uh, the, the interest rate hikes. But I I don't think we're going to know, and, and I think we what we do know is that very few companies had it as good as Apple and Microsoft did during COVID. There's no question about it. I mean, and, and that's what worries me as much as anything.
5: Yeah, and I'll just say this. I think we're going to be having this very conversation for months. I think we're going to be scratching our heads as the market has a 10% rally off of a relative low. I think we we're going to talk about, oh, we're going to go back and retest those sorts of lows. I think we're due for chop. And I think you got to go back to remember last year when we did not have a peak to trough decline in the S&P 500 of greater than 6%, given all of what we knew about the building inflationary fears and the uncertainty as it relates to the pandemic. So, this is what we get, people. I mean, this is really it. I mean, we're, we were kind of due for Are we a the people, pe- by the way? You, well, when you say people. those people. Thank you for showing up here, guys. Um, no, but I, I just think that we're going to be having these sorts of conversations. Now, to Guy's point, there's going to be lots of great trading opportunities. And I think to Karen's point, I think some of those names that you love the best, that you're thinking long term, five years out or maybe more, you're going to have opportunities to kind of dollar cost average into two. But the real question, and I think Guy says this all the time, if the Fed has lost the script, if things really do get out of control, then we are due for that kind of, we had 20% lower in the uh, NASDAQ. Let's see how everything acts if the S&P were to get down there. When you
2: say lost the script, you mean recession.
5: Well, here's the thing. At a certain point, rates aren't going to go that much higher. I mean, let, let's just think about that. The 10-year in 2018, when it got above 3% for the first time in a very long time, what did the Fed do? They changed their, they, they moved to a hugely devastating. Stance, right? If, they, if we are talking at some point because of recessionary fears right. about going the other way in rates, I think I think this is where risk assets go haywire. Think
1: about every chart that we've seen over the last couple of days, though, how, how 10-year rates have broken a 40-year downtrend, and well, all you see are people showing you this chart about how we've broken to the upside of what has been a trend. I, I hear you. It's hard to imagine a world where rates can get that far ahead of us, um, but it does look like technically we've broken what has been a very long-term well, downtrend. Then we are talking
2: about the, the revival of a Fed put, so to speak. I mean, for a while we were saying that the Fed put is gone out of the market. But here we're saying it, the Fed will not let that happen. It I don't, not if you don't, listen to I Bill agree. Dudley. I, mean, I don't agree. I mean, okay. Yep. I, I think the
4: Fed, the Fed is... Very hawkish, certainly with hikes, mm-hmm. and I think also with QT, they started to right. Yeah. They're starting to really be aggressive with that. To me, though, losing the thread means the credit markets start to get mm-hmm. really. Yeah, but that, that they're was they're not yet. That was the, the same down,
5: sentiment not- in Q4 2018. Don't forget, there were growth issues there. I mean, they, people were saying they're hiking into a slowing economy, and as soon as we had the stock market go down 20% in two months, they changed their tune and they hadn't hiked rates until just last
1: month. You know, but from- also,
4: we hadn't spent four trillion dollars,
1: and I don't think we had the same economy. I, I hear what you're saying. And whether it, it, it you know, if you feel that we got some kind of a stave off of that economy, but, you know, basically the war economy, COVID was, look, everything that came out of COVID was a war economy. And I think it, in addition to stimulus and in addition to what we have in terms of infrastructure build, I I, I don't think we have the same economy.
2: All right. Uh, let's talk about this recent move in rates. That's put what the chartmaster calls the most important trend line in the market in play. Let's bring in Carter Worth of Worth Charting to break down the lines. Tell us what this all means. Carter, what are you looking at?
6: Well, we're all looking at the same line. And obviously, if you have arguably the most important market in the world, the the government debt market, uh, and you draw your lines, uh, there are two ways to do it here and now. And by all accounts, the traditional way, the arithmetic chart, we're going to see that in a second. We have broken to sort of a trend but we haven't on the log chart so here you see on the screen this is of course the all data and it's an arithmetic scale so you have their peak there on september 30 1981 it was a wednesday right that was 15 spot 87 percent and we have our low on march 9th of 2020 our COVID low before the stock market bottomed at 31 basis points now here's the thing about drawing trend lines you can connect any two points Any two points in any instrument, that's not a trend. You need at least three points. And to be fair, if you take the point uh, uh, where we moved above that trend line, which happened about three months ago, we have a trend that at least has three touch points. Now look at the next chart. Uh, This is the log scale. And actually, in many ways, this is the more important because how many times have we touched the trend line to the penny? Six. On the arithmetic, two points. Maybe three, depending on how you want to draw the line. This is the exact same trend line, in effect, since the 1981 peak. And that line comes into play at two spot, 81%. We're very close to that. How we react to this line really determines a lot. Were we to back away because recession-type things are coming? Or do we really push through in a meaningful way? And then what your discussion was just how far could we possibly go? I don't think there's that much left in the yield advance
2: so just to underscore that carter 2.81 is that trend line that That, area of resistance okay carter braxton worth our thanks to you as always of worth charting what do you make? it? 2.81, that's not so bad. It's not so far from here.
1: We're there. Um, yeah. and, and, and the 10-year Bund chart, I know people don't spend a lot of time looking at European rates, but this is maybe on some level a more dramatic chart even than the 10-year. When I listen to Carter say that, it tells me we're going inverted on the yield curve then um, because I, I think the Fed has to go significantly higher than 250 to 275 in Fed funds. So um, it, I, I think this is what Dan was saying. I, it's hard for me to see rates go a lot higher yeah. a, except for the fact that these charts are telling me they want to go well, higher. Right. But what did say? say to
5: me right after that, she said, but the $4 trillion that we added since 2018, that's also the reason why it's not going much higher. They have to service all of that debt. The other thing is why they might have the opportunity to do a dovish um, uh, switch is because growth is slow What if it crude oil is back at $72 where it was six months ago, all right, right? We're
4: going we're to see a CPI print or a, or a PCE print that's yeah. going to be, high, you know, high sevens, maybe eight something, mm-hmm. eight four, I think. That's a big difference. And if you look at Carter's chart, I don't I don't I don't like to disagree with Carter because that's usually not a good call, but I would be interested to see an inflation overlay because we are so far out on the inflation curve relative to that that was peak inflation at the beginning of that chart, and we've been down ever since, and now we're spiked up high. So I think we can go through there.
2: Let's play Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, oh I love this wow. I know. wow. Bring it back. wow. Um, let's say <laughs> you do believe Carter, and 2.81 is the ceiling for 10-year yields. What is the investment then? Do you think that the markets can get a respite?
3: No. I think okay. if they if yields stop at Carter's level and start going down, yields be going down because the market's selling off and people are buying bonds as a flight to quality. So I think under those circumstances, if we stop here, start going significantly lower in yields, maybe somewhere between 2.3 and 2.4, it's because the broader market is selling off. Well. That's what you have to be concerned about.
1: My adventure is is I, I want to believe in a healthy consumer, in a labor market that's tight, in very light positioning here, in terrible sentiment, um, all the things that could tick equities a bit higher. Again, I'm someone that opened up the show saying I hate where the charts are, and I think semis tell you they're going lower. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think you have a dynamic here where right now this is an economy where the Fed is has got some room to push a little bit. We're not going to really know the impact of these rates for six to nine months. Uh, and I think for equities at some point, we're going to test those old lows and we're Actually, very close to them. Uh, we're going to push through them, I believe, and then we're setting up for another very strong rally. Uh,
2: if Carter is wrong, which is the call that most people don't necessarily want to go with because Carter's been right so many to times. The in the past, to, right. the <laughs> to the penny, he's been right. To the penny. And rates go considerably higher above that trend line, then what happens with stocks? And I ask this question because it seems like no matter what the scenario for rates, stocks go down. And I don't like to say that. Because I don't want to be that pessimistic. Yeah, but, for, but that's what it like.
5: For the last like. 13 years, it's been the opposite way. And the guy says this all the <laughs> time. So every time the market sold off, it's been a great buying opportunity. So I guess the point that I was just making a couple minutes ago, I think we're going to be having this conversation a lot over the next few months. And I think it's really important to also remember the S&P 500, if you're not a stock picker here, if you just tune in for uh, Tim's great hair or guy's good looks or whatever, you know, and you're just like <laughs> uh, long the S&P turn or in. In. something like that, then you're only down 7.5% after the S&P was up 26% last year. Not so bad given everything we know.
4: Well, I think if we get there, those higher rates, because the economy is moving along, because people are still employed, because PMIs are up, because capacity utilization is up. I mean, that's a no case scenario. And I think stocks can do better,
2: even with the Fed. We go much, much higher because inflation is running rampant. That's not as good.
1: Okay. <laughs> guy, was that Blue Steel? Was that Blue <laughs> no, Steel? No, I didn't. I didn't know. I think Who was is that Steel. guy? Was ben Stiller? Zoolander. No. Yeah. Zoolander. Yeah, it was yeah. Blue Steel. Oh. Should I try again? Yeah, yeah. do it again. No. Do it again. Coming up. <laughs>
2: Don't you have a bandana or Now something? we need Somewhere. to put up the Maybe warning to warn I have parents that. for children to look away from the screen when you guide us blue steel. Oh. All right, coming up. <laughs> Ready for takeoff. Airlines getting altitude ahead of some earnings this week. So which names are worth a look here? We're flying into that trade next. Plus, Microsoft deep in the red today as analysts get bearish. The growth warning they are flagging straight ahead. Do not go anywhere. Fast money is back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Airline stocks moving higher today staging a comeback as crude pulls back 4% after turbulent start to the year. Will this turnaround for the sector continue? We've all been talking about spending, consumers continuing to spend in the face of inflation. They're spending on going away, Tim.
1: They're spending on going away. They're spending on getting back to work. And, and I think there's a lot of things that I can speak to. I know Dan talked about it in terms of my work life, which tell me it's kind of business as usual. If you listen to Delta, they gave an assessment of what they're, they're going to announce in a couple of days. They, they gave some assessment of where first quarter was relative to 1Q 2019, which is how we look at airlines. And they say they're going to be at 78 to 80 percent of that. Is that good enough? Well, for a company that at least didn't dilute, their shareholders massively didn't load on a ton of debt. Delta, to me, is the one that has the most normalized profile coming out of this, even in a world where transatlantic in front of the bus is under some pressure. I like it. I like it
2: here. I mean, the business traveler is definitely getting back out there, even if it's not necessarily transatlantic completely yet um, or to Asia. But in in the United States, I mean, just take a look at your airports.
3: No question. The second, I still think Look, it's going to be dicey for the broader market without question. Delta reports on Wednesday, I think, before the bell. I don't think that's important because I don't think it's an earnings story. But I do think all these airlines can rally massively in the back half of the year. Delta specifically, and then the travel-related stocks, Airbnb, the A in the Dawn trade. As you know, I think Dan's ARP trade has the A in it as well. And throw Expedia in there, the E in the Hope trade. I think the second half of this year, for those travel-related names, that's where you want to be. And it might start post-earnings for Delta this week. Yeah, I'll just say this, because we spent a lot of time talking about how Zoom was taking market share from these
5: airlines. Look at Zoom. I mean, literally, it made a low of 95 a month or so ago, and it's trading at 109. And that stock feels like it's going to break those sorts of lows here. And I don't know about you guys, but I, if I don't have to do Zoom, I'm not doing it. At- I'm going back to the phone. I mean, like, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. I think that's an interesting well, I mean, to put. Back, go back
4: to the phone.
3: What? I thought you were going to say I mean, in Like person. a rotary? <laughs> no, that's guy's rotary. Well yeah, it's, I'm, I'm the same age as I was when we, two two years ago. Just a couple <laughs> more grey hair, just two years older. I'm the same person. Be
2: nice. You haven't been in the airline trade in a while. I haven't. I mean, I was before, before
4: the pandemic, obviously missed a gigantic run after the pandemic. I, I don't know if inflation might be good for them. Can they pass along mm-hmm. these higher energy costs? Probably. Do they charge they for have. everything now? Right. Yeah. So, um, and it's good for their debt, you know, they would pay, pay off that debt with lower value dollars. But ultimately then they do have to refi, but that's down the road. Yeah.
2: All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next.
3: Social swing. Elon Musk dropping plans to join the Twitter board. So is a takeover on the table? The traders break it down next. Plus, coins crushed. Bitcoin dropping below 40K as the crypto market heads south. Is there a bottom in sight? Or is crypto winter in full effect? The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back
0: right after this. Picture this, it's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture.
8: We could keep
0: trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. A quick check of the market action today. Stocks selling off into the close. The Dow and S&P both dropping more than one percent, both closing below their 50-day moving averages. The tech-heavy Nasdaq dropping more than two percent. Turning now to Twitter, shares finishing in the green after Elon Musk announced on the site that he would not be joining the social media company's board. The Tesla CEO was supposed to take the job officially over the weekend. For more on this Musk whiplash, let's bring in Oppenheimer senior internet analyst Jason Helfstein, who has an outperformed rating, a $60 price target on Twitter. Jason, great to have you with us. Thanks. Uh, Obviously, you know, Musk not being on the board, Musk being allowed to acquire more shares, it gives him a little bit more freedom, a little more latitude to force change uh, if he chose to, and it's not clear what he will actually choose to do. um, What would you like to see him do from a shareholder perspective?
7: Yeah, look, I think we need some answers from the company. And so um, around why isn't user engagement stronger? Um, You know, for a period of time, one could blame uh, COVID pull forward of more time spent, you know, at home on devices. But I think the question is, if the product improvements are working and if you follow the narrative, it does seem like things like topics, the way to create accounts, are getting easier. Why isn't why is user growth slowing? And I think one of the questions investors have is, is it editorial or content decisions that the company is making that might maybe alienating some users, encouraging them to go to other platforms?
2: Well, how will we get that answer, Jason? I think that's a that's that's like the, the question everybody wants answered, and I think that's what Elon Musk sort of brings to light in this in this debate over where Twitter is going. And so how how do you as an analyst get that answer? How do you come up with that $60 price target if we don't know what that answer is?
7: So I mean, look, I you can start and say kind of like where is Snap today and Twitter still trades at a, I think it's a 63% discount to Snap on this year's revenue estimate. So you could, you know, it's not hard to say if you believe in the company, how do you get upside? But I think that, you know, the pressure needs to ultimately come from Mr. Musk. So. To the extent that he made the decision not to be on the board it doesn't mean he won't support getting um, his preferred nominees on the board Um, this is a stock that if you look at it doesn't really have i will say broad investor support Um, if you look at it, a lot of the investment is from index fund passive investors if you do get other investors who do want to piggyback mr musk um, and, and they're willing to lend their support behind his nominee or nominees i think there is a way to get uh the company to kind of face some hard truths which is you know what do they want to be when they grow up now this is not a small company but you know the question is can you get to be a billion users over time in a truly kind of dominant you know true like global platform and do do you want to be an advertising company do you want to be a subscription company what do you want to be when you grow up
2: so, I, Jason, I think, I wonder if the company has gotten that message to some extent. I mean, if the stock is going to go up every single day, Elon Musk is connected to Twitter in some sort of headline and goes up even more the day that Elon Musk you know, decides not to join the board and is free to acquire more shares and free to, you know, isn't that the answer the company has gotten, that, that what they are doing is not what shareholders want. Shareholders want something else.
7: Again, look, just the, the stock's reaction to his initial involvement And in today, what was a weekday for some tech stocks, Twitter was up again, Um, you know, it was a big short covering day, but for for some of the tech names, uh, but but look, I think it's showing you that there are investors who believe that this asset can be better managed. And I think the question is, um, you know, how do you become a platform for a more diverse group of voices? Um, It's clear that the other social media platforms do not want to be in the news business or the or, or the information business. There's other uh, areas that they're focused on, and this is this area is right for Twitter to be successful. And so, you know, look, I think it starts with clarifying what content will be acceptable on the platform. Um, if advertisers don't want to support that content, potentially, because again, we are seeing a lot of advertisers just not want to be around certain news content then perhaps there's a way to turn it into a subscription business. There are plenty of subscription business models uh, on the Internet today. And so, again, um, I think what you're seeing in the stock is that investors do want to support Mr. Musk pushing change.
2: Jason, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Jason Halstein of Oppenheimer. Um, Bloomberg had an opinion piece today in the headline I thought was really interesting, put it quite succinctly. Musk isn't joining Twitter. Twitter has joined him. I thought that was really interesting given what we've seen so far.
4: Yeah, I understand why he didn't want to go on the board. I think he can do so much more from the outside he can you know put ideas forth to the twitter sphere mm-hmm. and get great feedback there so that's really important he probably would be bored during the meetings honestly and the other thing is not only is he free to buy shares he is also free to sell no. shares if he were on the board he would not be free to sell shares except for occasional windows in between quarters not that he couldn't but it's, it's he's now he's absolutely free to sell whenever he'd like i get why he didn't do it i'm not quite sure why he said at the Two yeah, days so. ago,
5: yeah, I'll be on the board. Yeah, I would just say for investors following him into the trade, he's never really articulated why he thinks Twitter is a good investment. He's told you that he doesn't, he's addicted to the product. He obviously finds it fun um, and he wants changes to happen and he likes trolling them. And I think this really goes back to you know, his view of the world, Jack Dorsey's view of the world, some other people who've created these centralized platforms view of the world. And I think he's having some fun with it. And I think you're right. I mean, if he were going to go on that board, he'd have a fiduciary responsibility. I suspect he gets bored. I suspect he doesn't think he can affect the sorts of change that he would like. And then he probably moves on because he owns this thing with an average price below 40. And I I think he wants to take a gain. So if he can't affect change that he thinks is going to turn into a greater profitable platform that he's He's going to sell out and he's going to move
1: on. It, it, it. Well, okay. we've no, seen, we've seen activism around Twitter before, right? We had Elliott Management push it on Jack Dorsey at one point. And, and I guess, uh, you know, the question is, has Twitter been left alone uh, too long? And, and I think stirring up the pot, we all recognize, and and the market has applauded. Um, I think Elon Musk attached to anything, whether it's uranium or, or Tesla or other things, it clearly moves it higher. Um, I, I just also wonder, the company, the CEO over the weekend said distractions, uh, tweeted out to employees, uh, be careful of distractions, substantial distractions ahead. What does that mean? Does that mean they're kind of girding themselves for a A. Musk offensive? And and that's interesting.
3: Last week, uh, it was April 4th, April 5th. Stock traded almost half a billion shares over a two-day period. We thought it would stop at 55. It got pretty close. Here we are in the high 40s. You buy it again. They report at the end of the month, they have a $4 billion stock repurchase in place from their last earnings report, which is not insignificant for that company. And Jason's got a $60 price target. The next time up, I actually think it gets there.
2: Coming up, we're hitting two big stock moves, Microsoft and AT&T heading in different directions. The reasons why ahead. But first, crypto getting clobbered. Bitcoin sliding below the $40,000 mark. So what is next for the crypto trade? We've got the details when Fast Money returns.
3: Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Bitcoin dropping below the $40,000 mark, hitting its lowest level since March 16th. The rest of the crypto market following suit, Ether, Ripple, some other big coins down big. And we're just coming off some pretty big crypto conferences. Recently, Twitter's been a flutter with... uh All these people gathering in Miami. Yeah, our friend Meltem said she's done
5: with crypto conferences. I'll see it when I believe it. I'll see it. Um, All right. Well, here's the deal. Let me just say this. These things usually rally into them. And, you know, they kind of oftentimes, you know, kind of come in after. And I'll just say this. Our friend BK says this all the time on the show. Bitcoin really has become a macro asset here. And so it's one of those things that I think a lot of people look to um, from a sentiment standpoint. But it also seems to trade very, very closely with high growth tech.
4: So it was interesting to me that Bitcoin actually caught a bid at the beginning of the invasion, right? Mm. Uh, You would think a lot of people trying to get money out of various places. And then it's really kind of gone nowhere, while gold, which has sat out for a couple of years, really became the sort of go-to hedge. And that's I think that's sort of a knock on the Bitcoin story for sure. And I feel like there's less institutional momentum. We'll see if there's an ETF that's created. That would be important.
2: But right now, it's just kind of sideways or worse. Moving on, check out all the big bank earnings coming up this week. J.P. Morgan, City, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, more uh, on deck to report. Analysts are expecting a major decline in a couple key areas for this group. But options traders are betting on big gains for at least one major name. Mike Co joins us with the action. Mike.
3: Yeah. So we're taking a look at Goldman Sachs today, Melissa. Goldman Sachs was actually the busiest financial stock that traded today in notional terms. It traded over two times its average daily call volume, and the calls outpaced puts significantly by more than two to one. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about $15 higher or lower by the end of this week, which actually ends on Thursday after they report earnings. But most of the activity was in the 3:30 strike calls. We saw opening buyers of those paying a little over five dollars and sixty cents a contract, and buyers of those calls are risking about one point seven percent of the stock's closing price today, betting that it's going to end the week at least four percent higher.
2: Gee, what are you saying on Goldman? JP,
3: well, Goldman Sachs, I think, it's just too cheap. You heard Pete Nigerian mention it on the OT,
2: halftime overtime. Does that make us half double overtime? Over says, yeah. And we say he was in overtime. He was in the halftime overtime. Yeah. Is it sudden
3: death overtime? Anyway, he was saying that he bought Goldman Sachs. Yeah, and the setup probably is pretty good for Goldman Sachs. I think the setup for J.P. Morgan, I'm sure Karen feels this way as well. You go back. When did you mention the last time we're all here together? December 2019. Well, it was sort of February of 2020 when everything crated well. J.P. Morgan, I think at the time, was making an all-time high about 136. Look at where it is now. So past resistance becomes support. J.P. Morgan in earnings this week, for the first time in a while, I think it's worthy of a trade on the long side.
2: All right. Thank you, Mike Coe, for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show, not this Friday. We're off this Friday. But the following Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, coming up, not really excelling. Hmm. Shares of Microsoft dropping after a bearish oh, I call I at UBS. We'll tell you the potential slowdown that's got analysts worried. Plus, alliteration time, AT&T topping today's tape. The big deal that had shares surging. Do not go anywhere. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Microsoft shares dropping nearly 4% after UBS warned of a potential slowdown in Office 365 growth. Analysts saying the pandemic work from home benefit is starting to fade, but they kept a buy rating and a $360 price target intact. That is more than 25% upside from today's close. I don't really get that call, uh, particularly when they're talking a lot about pull forward, that a lot of the, you know, businesses pulled forward into the pandemic?
5: Yeah, so I mean, I guess the point is, is that we've seen this in many other businesses that benefited from the pandemic, especially with recurring models here, and they've kind of held on, but they've seen decelerating growth, and the valuations have been clipped. And so Microsoft, if you're going to kind of start assigning a slower growth rate for their second largest business unit, and let's say we do go into that recession that we debated um, about a half an hour ago, I mean, you're going to see corporate spending decline. You see new orders kind of decline. The recurring nature of it is the thing that justifies maybe 30 times. But you didn't hear Karen say before, She's talking about Google and Facebook, it's cheap. This is historically expensive. And if there was a meaningful growth decline, the stock is going to be re-rated.
3: 285. I mean, you're talking about a stock that's trading, I don't know, close to 29 times next year's number, maybe 14% EPS growth. When rates were at zero, nobody cared. When rates are moving up, everybody's focused on valuation. I think that's what's going on now. Microsoft topped out, I want to say, in November-ish. It's been basically sideways to lower ever since. question is, where do you buy it? I still think there's probably another 7% downside into earnings on the 28th of April.
4: To me, just reading the notes about this note, one of the things was talking about channel checks and discussions with IR. That part is interesting to me because mm-hmm. sometimes IR will give the street a hint and sort of soften the street up. The right. numbers going to come in a little light. That wouldn't shock me if that were the case here. So I think maybe they have not. I mean, maybe it's not just an educated guess. Maybe it's something a little firmer than that. Right. Well,
1: the bar's high. I mean, 19 to 21 percent for the last six quarters in their second largest business, which is massive by 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 any measure. So um, I I think that could be. I mean, it's it's what IR will do quite often. And if you look at the, the chart too, the other thing that's just notable to me is that the longer term moving averages, are, are slanting down. In other words, a negative sloping 100 days, not something Microsoft has had for, for forever. And, and it just tells you that what Guy had said, that it really hit its highs really back to uh, October, November, and, and that the bar to me is so high for, for clearly one of the most defensive, high-quality names that you can own. Um, but the fact that it's down 10% in the last five sessions when, in fact, this was a defensive way to play uh, a market that was under pressure.
2: I don't really get though why everything remains intact from the analyst standpoint when there is a deceleration in growth. How can that be? I
5: mean, well, it's not confirmed yet, and, and here's the problem okay. with a stock like Microsoft. It has 51 analysts that cover it, 47 of them rated a buy, and probably 40 would never downgrade it. Something horrible would have to happen for them to downgrade the stock, and only four hold, no sells. I'll just say this. I know you guys are going to love this. Textbook head and shoulders top here. You see that neckline around 280. It looks like it's got 260 written over in a tough market where investors are kind of pricing in, decelerating growth, higher rates, possibly a slower economy in the back half of the year. But that gets you back to its break breakout level from last June.
2: Mm. Meantime, shares of AT&T topping the tape after disclose, or closing the deal to spin off its Warner Media business. The stock also feeling the love from Wall Street firms, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank all out with positive notes on AT&T. The newly public Warner Brothers discovery was able to eke out a gain at the close. So this makes the business a little more core in terms of its, you know, what it does, AT&T. Um, and it also rewards shareholders who did hold on with part of the spin-off.
1: A streamlined, focused AT&T, I, I, I believe, is what the street has wanted to see yeah. for a long time. And, and the, the forays into, into media uh, are, are things that clearly have been disastrous and the value that they've destroyed. But but again, you're, you're looking at uh, connectivity at scale. Uh, you're talking about $45 billion that will flow back to the balance sheet that will take net debt from three and a half times or so debt to EBITDA to two and a half times and makes it ultimately a place also where that dividend is, is not an albatross that the company wears around its neck. It cuts it in half uh, as someone that's long AT&T, it's been a disaster. Um, even though I've been getting paid along the way, and I, and I think I'm going to continue to get paid. But I, I like the direction here.
4: So it's very similar to Verizon on that front. I think shareholders w- were pretty pissed at the time about that deal, mm-hmm. and here we are. It's only what two years later. I mean, I don't know. That's kind of a colossal disaster. Maybe th- I don't have an opinion on this price for uh, for the merged entity, but i don't know i just find that ridiculous when you have a giant disaster like that and two years later forget it never mind
2: um you know the the model though the notion of owning the pipes as well as the content and that being rejected makes you think about comcast which is our parent company so i'm not saying anything negative (laughs) um but it does make you wonder about that business model and whether this is the market for that sort of supermarket business model.
3: You won't understand this, but AT&T has become sort of the Joey Gallo of telecom. Now, what does that mean, Tim? I don't even understand that They swing and miss an awful lot, Tim. An awful lot, I'm just saying. And finally, (laughs) for the first time in a while, 150 million shares traded today. That's three times normal volume. I think you can actually own the stock. We talked about it in a call. I think it was a 38-year low today AT&T made. But finally, I think you have a tradable bottom.
2: Right. Coming up, uranium on a tear lately, and our next guest says this is just the beginning. What the head of a public uranium fund has to say about the soaring prices. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. If you're searching for a hot trade, take a look at uranium, the commodity surging almost 50 percent so far this year, boosted by the Russia-Ukraine war fallout. But months before, one major metals investor got deep into the uranium space, and the decision is paying off. Jo- John Champalia is the CEO of Sprott Asset Management. The firm runs the Physical Uranium Trust. John, great to have you with us.
8: Great to be here. Thank you for having
2: me. You say that we're in the second inning of a multi-year cycle, and I'm wondering how you think of – this game and how we get to the end of this game. How many reactors have to come online? How much uranium um, do we need to, to sort of satisfy in terms of demand?
8: Sure. Well, there's a, the, the fleet of about 400 reactors around the world use about 180 million pounds of uranium every year. And right now there's about 130 million pounds coming out of the ground through primary production. So you know, I might ask, well, where, where's this uh, deficit being filled by? And basically been secondary supplies uh, that have been fed into the market, but that is quickly coming to an end. And a lot of that is being driven by non-utility buyers, and those are investments uh, made by different funds like ourselves and different hedge funds that want to get involved in the physical commodity. And I would say over the last 12 months, those non-utility buyers probably accumulated over 50 million pounds of physical uranium. So the utilities who are the end user of this commodity are obviously competing with with non-utility buyers right now.
2: So right now um as it currently stands from what i am understanding just the current fleet of reactors and these are reactors that are operational that they are running they will not be decommissioned by the end of the year i'm just trying to understand what what the dynamics are in terms of um, how sticky this demand is because i understand that many uh, reactors in europe are going to be decommissioned in the next year or so
8: yeah well there's a real there's a what we believe is there's a new renaissance coming in the nuclear power uh in, in industry because Last year, it was really all about decarbonization and energy transition. Governments around the world acknowledging they need to include nuclear as part of their clean energy mix because renewables uh, have issues with intermittency as we all have learned over the last 12 months. So governments around the world are supporting nuclear power. Now, if you fast forward to the start of the invasion of Ukraine, that has now added additional stress to the sector because now governments are increasingly focused on energy security. And that energy security, as we're seeing certain governments in Europe are learning a very hard way that transitioning away from nuclear, like Germany has done, uh, has, is causing them a lot of problems. Whereas France, their neighbor, who's been very pro-nuclear over, over its history, are not having the same kind of issues.
1: Hey, John, it's Tim. Um, congrats on, on a call that I know you've been committed to for a long time. And it almost seems that, uh, you know, everybody is coming on board with uranium. Talk about almost the self-fulfilling and feeding dynamic of liquidity in the markets for uranium plays and, and why that also is going to push, uh, I think, more institutions into this trade.
8: Sure. Well, I, you know, I'm going to start off by saying that it was uh, about a nine-year bear market. So over that period <laughs> of time, there was massive destruction of capital. And quite honestly, 18 months ago, you couldn't talk to anybody about this category. It was completely out of favor. Fast forward to today and over the last year, we've had conversations with probably a hundred different financial institutions around the world. And they're all interested in this theme because of decarbonization and energy security. And one of the big takeaways for investors is it's a very small market. It is, uh, you know, if you look at the amount of uranium that's used by these reactors, it's about $11 billion a year. And if you look at the value, of all of the uranium, the uranium companies, are publicly traded, there's about 80 of them, they only amount to 37 billion in total market cap. So if you compare that to some of the oil and gas companies like Exxon, Exxon's 10 times the size, the market cap of those 80 companies, or even some of the smaller oil and gas companies are two to three times the size of the 80. So investors are real- realizing this, and we think there's a lot more capital to come into the sector.
2: John, great to have you with us. Hope you come back soon. John Champalia of Sprout Asset Management. Um, It's been a hot trade. It doesn't feel like a fad though.
3: No, not at all. I mean, Tim's been talking about this. CCJ made, I think, 11 year high today. You're gonna start seeing more upgrades. You've had a couple of them over the last month or so. Newmont Mining, completely different, I get it. But mining stocks, Newmont Mining made an all time high today. Name we've been talking about for a while. So the mining trade is not, no, it's not a fad. And I don't think it's even close to getting started.
4: Are there giant uranium companies that are private? That will be become public? Or is, that, or is he talking about the small amount of market cap that there is for uranium companies? I don't know the space that,
1: so. That I'm, in the physical, and just owning the physical, I mean, is, is, is part of where you're going to continue to see more liquidity into the space, owning it outright. Yeah, the actual
2: urea. Yep. You, you've been in this trade, though, too. Yeah,
1: and, and I, I agree. I, it's not a fad. It's, it's, about, it's about energy security. It's about a dynamic that I think uh, Germany's learning painfully. It's about decarbonization. I mean, there's, there's three or four different trends and themes rolled up into one that are not things that happened overnight. I, I'm Long Sprott, the asset management company, by the way, who I think are involved in a lot of very interesting areas that I think are just in the same kind of tailwind.
2: All right. Up next, final trades. it's time for the final trade let's go around the horn tim seymour
1: i think we could have slipped in a segment on silver slv in today's show with all these other themes don't fall asleep on gold i think silver can outperform gold here
2: karen feinerman
4: i feel like it's wizard of oz well back your dorothy the tim man i I'm the the, the, what are you man? lying on wow. the scarecrow. Scare-cro. i'm the scarecrow i'm 100
3: okay. scarecrow all
4: right my final trade you
2: i Dan?
5: Uh, yeah, not particularly interested in AT&T. It's almost like a good bank bad bank situation here, but maybe that Warner Brothers Discoveries where to look here.
2: Okay.
3: I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow. I actually cry when I say that. I actually cry when say I there's say no that.
1: Place, there's no place like home. Right
2: now. Twitter!
3: Like home. 47 and a half is your entry level there. All right.
2: It was great to have you all back here on the desk. Really good no to place share. Like home. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.